So far, all the items in the collection podcast have been selected by me, Chloe Midgulchi. But what happens when I ask six members of the Center for Research Collection to choose one item fitting of a special collection? Find out what items they chose and what exactly they consider gentlemanly. It's all inside the collection. Hello and welcome to the final episode of the Collection Podcast. My name is Chloe McGulchy. As this is the last episode, I wanted to do something unique. Up until this point, I have handpicked the items to discuss in each episode, but this week's episode has been curated by the members of the Center for Research Collections. The theme for this episode? A gentleman's collection. I came across this term while doing research for this podcast in a description for the Lang Collection, and I was kind of tickled by it, and it's stuck with me ever since. In this context, a gentleman's collection is one that centers around a particular theme, which the Lang Collection doesn't adhere to. However, I decided not to use this definition, or any in fact, when I enlisted the help of these curators. I simply asked for one representative from each archive in the university's collection to select one item that they best believe suits a gentleman's collection, whatever that means to them. And I must say, what you're about to hear is really stellar. They all gathered for a sort of roundtable show-and-tell, which also makes this episode unique in that our experts get to see the other objects. So what you'll hear are questions, laughs, and even gasps to some of these objects, as well as their fascinating stories. I'll begin with Elizabeth Lawrence, who is the Assistant Rare Books Librarian. She couldn't make it to the recording, but begins the gentleman's collection with a book entitled The Antiquities of Athens Measured and Delineated. This, this is James, James mm-hmm. Athenian Stewart, um, who was born, he was born in London. He's a poor painter, but he manages to travel abroad. And with Nicholas Rivette, who is actually a country gentleman, mm-hmm. and they very well have been funding the entire enterprise, but I don't know, um, they were the first people to go and do proper surveys and measured drawings and with a quite archaeological approach to Greek antiquities, the way other people have previously done it in Rome. And it is from this publication that the entire Greek revival of the early 19th century comes. And it's a gentlemanly-led um, led movement because the first volume of this, this, this thing is published in four volumes um, from 1762 to 1830. <clears throat> so the last two volumes are actually long after, um, which I think both of them are dead. Um, but this first volume apparently had 500 subscribers, but it didn't get to the artists. This is 500 gentlemen. <laughs> so it becomes, it's a gentleman's, gentlemanly-led design movement. Um, Stuart is an architect himself, so he works on so many places that we now know. Keddleston, Hagley Hall, Newby Hall, Yorkshire, Garden Buildings, Shugborough, Mount Stuart, works at the Admiralty, Royal Hospital Greenwich, you know, all these places. So it's, it's the design movement of the era. This is Edinburgh College's College of Arts copy. Interesting. So this is presumably for gentlemen scholars? No, this is for practical artists. Okay. Because the predecessor of Edinburgh College of Art 
is the drawing academy of the Board of Trustees for Manufacturers in Scotland. And this is training architects and um, painters and designers for Edinburgh, or Scottish industry. Gotcha. And of course, no student can afford stuff like this right. as a design source. And of course, all this classical stuff becomes absolutely fundamental to teaching art for, I think, most of the 19th century. Um, and this set has obviously been in use in the Trustees Academy all the way through. And you can tell from the plates you know, which bits they were using. So right. the overall map is in reasonably good condition. This one, the whole bottom corner is gone. Right. You know, it's been heavily repaired. We'll leave the sellotape out of it. But you <laughs> see the amount of wear it's had. It's not deliberate damage, it's just, you know, a hundred years probably of students coming back and back and back to the same plate because oh, this is the thing they had to study because these things are, the cast of these things are all around the, the college. Right, yeah, the, the friezes at mm. the bottom. You know, and this is what you studied from. But they are also training a lot of architects. Right. So there's an awful lot of students passed through the college in the 19th century who are interested in these proportions of the columns and the layout. I mean, that's why that plan has disintegrated. Um, but it's an absolutely wonderful monument to Edinburgh College, well, predecessor of Edinburgh College of Art, Trustees Academy, and to art education, and to this gentlemanly movement. You know, and this is exactly the sort of book that you're finding in gentlemen's libraries. Um, there's a 19th century German reprint of this. Oh, really? Yeah. Which they also had. So they, of these 500, they just kind of got equally dispersed, or is this like a second edition? Well, no, this, this, this will be one of probably... It may be one of the 500, because they would print for subscribers, but they would also print some for sale. Okay. And, of course, the subscribers have to pay up front, mm. which means that you then have the money to fund yourself making all these plates. Right. So there's 200 plates in the whole four, whole four volumes. The final volume, when it came out in 1816, appears to have cost six pounds, six pounds, 12 shillings or something. Mm. And it was an awful lot of money. Right. So by the time you've got all four volumes, you're paying 20 or £30, pounds, and this is way out of reach for anybody who's a practising artist. <laughs> so um, strictly for gentlemen then, but very gentlemen much. have to fund it to make it. So yes. And the circular gentlemanly yeah. production. And indeed, this probable uh, relationship between Stuart and Rivette, mm -hmm. you know, that Nicholas Rivette can actually fund himself. He's an amateur architect who does a bit of work for other people. But fundamentally, he's a gentleman. Um, but James Stewart needs the work. Right. You know, and it is a partly on this book that he builds his career. Because it's on the basis of this that he, he produces paintings as well. And then he goes back into London society. And he becomes you know, the, the architect that everybody wants. Well, um, kind of becoming a gentleman himself. Indeed. Yeah. Kicking off our roundtable discussion is Daryl Martin. So I'm Daryl Martin, I'm the Principal Curator of the Musical Instrument Collection and what I have here is a walking stick. Um, it looks like a walking stick and if I stand up with it, next year when I really need a walking stick for age, I can use this. <laughs> so perfect height, 
um, people have commented about it being a bit James Bond-like, <laughs> and it comes apart. So if I take the end off it off, that's a handle, that unscrews, and I can take half of the side off, <laughs> oh. I have a violin. <laughs> <laughs> and if I... a finger in there, oh, no way. I have a bow for my violin. <laughs> so I then need to put the end of the, the people used to hold with the violin, and that goes under your chin, and I now have a violin. Oh, that's so. nice. And it comes from the mid-19th century. It's made of mahogany. Uh, it's probably made in England, we're not entirely sure, and it was one of a series of instruments at the time that they made as walking stick instruments. So you get walking stick violins, you get walking stick flutes, walking stick clarinets, walking stick bagpipe chanters. If you can make it long and thin, you can turn it into a walking stick instrument. And so this is unusual being a violin, because normally it's a bit wider than that. Uh, it doesn't play at the moment, but we have occasionally um, put a bridge on it and try to get a sound out of it. Not the world's best sound, but it does make a sound, and you can sort of imagine that someone seriously did try and play it on occasions. Um, more just an amusement thing as some as anything else rather than a musical instrument. Um, I'm sure whoever had this also had a proper violin for playing if you wanted to make real music on it. But it does work, it does play. Uh, the fingerboard is obviously normal size, but the neck of it, because it's half of a walking stick, is a bit too wide, so it's not really comfortable to play at all. The real violin neck would be much smaller than this. And it's got a decorative ridge there, which sort of stops how far up you can get playing the instrument before it starts becoming a bit uncomfortable. And of course, having a long, foot-long part at the end of it makes it a bit sort of heavy and weight. So it, it has its compromises, but it's a fun instrument. I can certainly see the gentlemen sort of having this and showing it off in the smoking room after they, after a day sort of evening meal with the cigar and so on, bring up the walking stick and see if people can guess what it is. And since we're a room of curators and so on, and no one really guessed until they saw it. I, I guess those who don't know about objects would have been equally confused. So that's this object. Would it have been very expensive? Would it, you we know, would it have found out the prices of them. I, I imagine it must have been, yes, because mm. a lot of work's gone into it. Um, obviously not as much as a proper violin, but it's still, yes, it must have been a cherished item. Right. And they still occasionally turn up in auctions. Uh, things like the flute ones and the clarinet ones actually have the holes in the, in the outside of it, so you can see what it is as you've got it. Yeah. Th this is unusual, sort of having the cover on it to sort of disguise what it actually is. It's like a twist on the globe with the drinks cabinet inside it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's great, isn't it, the gentleman? So why do you think like, there was a need for mobility with a, an instrument, like a walking stick of all things? I mean, I'm presuming that they didn't actually use it as a functioning walking stick. I imagine you're like out on a jaunt, but you also want something to play music with. I have tried seeing how much of it really, could, whether it would be safe to use it as a walking mm -hmm. stick without sort of risking it going bang or anything like that. And I think it actually could have been used as a walking really? stick. It wouldn't fall apart or anything like that. Yeah, whether someone actually did or not is a totally different thing. Yeah. I think it was more a sort of a show-off thing after. But it could be used if you wish. And I guess if you're actually going to church or something like that, or going for a walk in the countryside, and you want to play music in the middle of it, what better way of doing it? 
I'll go next. Oh, perfect. Next. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go clockwise. Um, I am Louise Williams, and I'm the archivist at Lothian Health Services Archive. I've brought in a few things today, but I suppose the main thing would be this 1938 photograph of um, a crest that was on display in the home of the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh residents. To be a resident was basically the next stage after qualification in being a doctor. And those individual just graduated students would be attached to either a clinician or a surgeon to learn their craft. Um, residents, though, unlike modern house officers, although it's kind of fairly equivalent, would eat, sleep, work and play in the hospital grounds. Um, so it was basically kind of like going to boarding school. Um, and I've chosen it as a gentleman's collection because um, when a lot of people think of hospital staff, they think of doctors, but they mainly think of nurses, a very feminine, caring profession. But to be a doctor in this kind of, in the period where we have most information about the residents, which would be from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century, it was a predominantly male profession. The first woman graduated as a doctor from the University of Edinburgh in 1893. So these were, for a long time, gentlemen's clubs. Um, this crest in particular, though, I think typifies them. We have a motto on the top. We absolutely do refuse. They're so very <laughs> playful. Um, the Royal Infirmary motto was, um, I think, patit omnibus. I've not got very good Latin, but I imagine that means to treat everyone. Um, here the residents are absolutely refusing. And um, we've got a crest with a tick, um, some sort of liquid which seems to be used to um, clear somebody's stomach out. Um, we also have um, micro, sort of microscopic cell images. At the bottom, we seem to have um, a diagram of an ovary. And on each side, we were discussing whether we have either tapeworms or whether they're a little more phallic than yours, <laughs> which I suggest that they are. Because if you read things like um, this magazine, which is the Infirmary Independent from September 1913, you'll get some rather savoury and some rather <laughs> unsavoury jokes, some very unpolitically correct jokes, which I'm not going to read out. Um, so, for example, um, we have a series of questions here which would have been... Um, which have been written by a resident but are supposed to come from a trainee nurse. Question, what is a resident? Answer, a resident is the noblest of God's creatures, in capitals. He is tall and distinguished in appearance and very, very beautiful. Question, what does he wear? Answer, he wears flannel trousers and a sad, haunting smile. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to know what these residents look like, we have a series of pictures of them because each six-monthly group had a photo taken. We have some here in which they're a bit more loose, sitting around, lounging around on the steps of the residency home in hats. You'll notice there's a pet dog here as well, who is also mentioned in the names under the picture. And we also have a more formal picture here, but they also have their pet cat called Darby. Oh. Yeah, it, it does. They do look like a bunch of chaps. Yeah. They That's were. Kind of, you they know, were chaps. 
(laughs) (laughs) They played tennis, they had golfing outings, they invited an opera company at one point in the early 20th century to come in. Um, We found in other, um, in minute books, because the residents had a committee basically to run their affairs when they were all living together in their mess room. And they used to find people um, for very sort of spurious reasons to get in a lot of alcohol and basically to play kind of drinking games. Um, and they had a charity, kind of like a rag week, a charity event, um, which we found um, at least once on Christmas Eve, but it implied it was repeated. And they had a fancy dress parade. Um, and so this is reflected in this photo, which is residents in fancy dress, which I can only imagine to be from that event. They also had balls and formal dinners. Um, So it was a real kind of gentleman's club. It can be jarring in a way to look at now, particularly through perhaps some of the politically incorrect language, the language about women, for example, um, that was used you can say you can take it in the context of the time um, but it's also a bit jarring because it does represent the high degree of privilege that people who trained to be doctors had and that very obvious gap from the people who they were treating who were from the infirmary people who couldn't afford to get medical care privately or from anywhere else um, and I think as well the images on the crest for example of things like things to um, flush people's stomachs out and ticks and tapeworms were kind of um, monomic of the sort of short, sharp shot that they must have had dealing with very ill, maybe not very glamorous people on a daily basis, which they actually might not have encountered in private practice. And it is rather strange to hear what they got up to, but people who were residents were also later turned out, turned out to be some of the most famous surgeons, physicians mm. in Edinburgh, people like Edwin Bramwell, Norman Dott, Edwin Matthew, you know, James Lerman, as I mentioned. And it's kind of hard to reconcile the picture that we have, say, of residents from this part of the Royal Infirmary collection, from their later work, their medical breakthroughs, the saving yeah. lives. And that's my gentleman's, or rather ungentlemanly, collection. <laughs> Okay, Um, so my name is Gillian McKay. I am the assistant curator of the geological collections. Um, And although our collection is primarily rocks and minerals and fossils, we also have um, a number of objects that would have come from quite literally gentlemen's collections um, that were donated to us. Um, and, And specifically in this case, Uh, I'm looking at the collection of Sir Charles Lyle. And Charles Lyle was um, born in 1787 and died in 1875. And he was a very sort of prominent feature in the sort of mid-Victorian period as he popularised science and wrote sort of popular science books. And he specifically is renowned for a book that he published which was called The Antiquity of Man. Uh, which was a book that studied sort of three themes. There was ice ages and there was sort of this idea of geology and ancient history and also how man fitted into this. Um, His interest in this subject was able to develop because he was a true gentleman. He was 
born to money um, and thus had time that he could spend in higher education, he could travel, he could take his time to study things that he whimsically fancied. The objects that he collected as he travelled around Europe, because he could do that, he had lots of time, um, included lots of axe heads, hand tools. We know that he had a big interest in these because we have many examples of them and several of them are illustrated in his books. They're actually drawn. Um, so the axe head that I have is, it's not very big, it fits into your hand nicely. It's maybe about a bit more than 10 centimetres. Um, and it's not particularly sharp. It probably wasn't the sort of thing that you would have, you know, put on the end of a stick and thrown at a mammoth and I hope that you get it. You probably would have used it more for like cutting maybe as a hand tool. Um, and it's the sort of common type of greyish, beigey flint, which is very common. So although it's part of a gentleman's collection because it was owned or at least some of its history was owned by a gentleman. They're sort of like a society that's very regimented in their sort of behaviour and etiquette and this sort of idea of there was a sort of a, a chivalrous sort of um, way of thinking about how gentlemen should behave. Um, but also that, you know, there's this sort of strange attitude that people who didn't behave as a Victorian gentleman should behave were sort of savage or uncivilised so it's quite a strange to me sort of juxtaposition of like the the elite gentleman who can afford to live this sort of luxurious lifestyle where he's able to you know travel and become educated but what he's actually studying is you know the the sort of deeper human elements of you know the species on almost like a, a primeval kind of level and I, I find this like quite an interesting sort of idea that um, we developed into the sort of people who could leisurely examine like sort of the nature of humanity uh, through archaeological discoveries. Interesting. Very cool. Hi, I'm uh, Malcolm McCallum, the curator of the Anatomical Museum. And um, I suppose, as Louise alluded to earlier on, our entire collection is really a gentleman's collection because it wasn't until the 1890s that females were graduating in medicine, so all the objects in the collection were collected by men to teach medicine to men, and most of the museum has kind of got a very male focus. But what I've got here is actually exactly what it looks like. It's got nothing to do with anatomy, really. It's an 18th or 19th century fork with two pieces meat missing, um, two-pronged fork, nothing special about it. The handle's missing, one of the tines is missing a little bit here. And this is a story, well, it's a fork with a back story, quite literally, because this fork <laughs> was taken out of the back of a sailor by a doctor who subsequently <laughs> donated it to the museum. And um, it was described, we know all about it because the doctor um, described it as a singular case and it was written up in The Lancet. So we've got a whole story about it. So the story is, 1831, a young sailor, a guy called Robert Syme, was on a boat called the HMS Belvedere off the coast of Malta. He hadn't had a day off sick in his life. He'd been at sea since the age of 12. And he turns up to sick bay with this doctor, this guy. Um, he's actually from Montrose, the Scottish doctor, David Burns, is working on the ship. And he says he's got a sore back. So the doctor has a look and you can see just a little boil. So he says, well, we'll, we'll burst the boil. So he gets a lance out, he bursts the boil. 
come back later. So young Robert came back a couple of days later, still sore back, still quite sore. So they put some poultices on for two weeks to try and draw up whatever was in his back. And they, they saw something described as a movable tumour. So they thought, nothing serious, just a cyst or something like that. And then on close inspection, they saw the end of this fork here. So sort of <laughs> shining. And so um, the doctor asked this young guy how it got in there and what it was. He goes, didn't know. No, no memory of the incident. You know, didn't know what had happened. So the initial thought was it might have been a fish hook. And they worried that it was maybe wrapped around the rib of the sailor. So... What they did was they had lance, um, not lance, it's forceps, and they just slowly pulled it day after day after day. And they realised that there was something quite substantial in here. So after a while, they said, more of a procedure, and they opened it up and they brought this out. Now, this is 11 and a half centimetres long, and it was embedded in the back. Now, this is, I think this is a tale of three gentlemen, because this guy said he didn't know how it got there. But the angle of it came in, looked like he'd been stabbed in the back. So by an unknown gentleman um, and there's a bit of an epilogue as well because six and a half years later the young sailor um, had been from Malta to South Africa he'd been to South America and then he came to London and he tracked down Dr Burns and he said he's got a very stiff neck here, very sore neck so they had a procedure done and they worked out that it was this bit of the fork had travelled from his back through oh, his body. No way. To the, so it went from the right-hand side of his back to the left-hand side of his neck, and it's taken out. Now, we don't have that wee bit. I don't know who it is. Um, but he was a lucky guy because it was really close to his jugular vein. Oh. And to this day, well, not to this day, but, <laughs> but he um, completely denied any knowledge of where it came from. Apparently, he had never seen active service before. No record of um, any sort of fighting on board the ship. Um, the doctor actually wrote to his parents to say, you know, has, this, has anything happened to have resulted in this? So it now is part of our sort of um, curiosities, Cabinet of Curiosities collection. Um, a gentleman put it in to another gentleman and a gentleman took it out. So that's my sort of gentleman angle to it. But, yeah, kind of macabre tale. You know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's quite a party. <laughs> <laughs> How did the little bit not like puncture a lung? I don't it was know. Going I mean, it must have travelled. Yeah, I mean, how, I don't, what circumstance can you not remember a, a fork this well, big was he, going I mean, in your you can conjecture. Was he trying to protect somebody? Yeah. Yeah. Did they, yeah. Shore leave, what went on. <laughs> you know, yeah. The point of it is really sharp. It yeah. is. How yeah. it didn't cause internal. Yeah. Yeah, how, or, he, how was he alive? Or how I mean, like blood poisoning, you know, like puncturing yeah. a serious organ, you know. And the report suggests the angle was almost somebody stabbing down into uh, his back and the handle might have broke while they were stabbed. Stabbing. And then the guy maybe had a bit to drink, mm. woke up, slightly achy yeah. back. So. Was this the doctor then who saved this fork? Yeah, the doctor saved it and he kind of, awesome. he, he actually made a nice little etching off it and he sent off an article to the Lancet. And then a subsequent article when the the little bit of remaining of the fork turned do, up in the guy's neck. Do you so. have copies of So we've the... got two, two articles ah. which you can search and look at them. Um, just bizarre. You know? yeah. Nothing to do with anatomy, but really nice part of our collection. I have no idea how I meant to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... Um... I think it's like a big yawn fest about to start. <laughs> oh, oh, not even. Not at all. <laughs> well, um, my name is Kirsty Stewart and I'm the New College Collections curator. Um, and... The item I've brought along today belonged to a 
man called Alexander Thompson and he was an Aberdeenshire laird and an antiquarian and I have to say when you ask just think about gentlemen when I think gentlemen I think top hat and I think antiquarians which is probably why I lit upon Alexander Thompson's collection now I think the reason we have a whole tranche of his papers is because he was a very ardent supporter of the Free Church of Scotland and New College when it was established was part of the Free Church of Scotland um, but uh, like Charles Lyle he was well off, he was a landed proprietor and he travelled a lot and he had all sorts of interests including antiquarianism, church he was quite interested in prison reform he was interested in, there's a, an item in his collection about the moral character of Scottish women and he, was, he seemed to be a bit concerned about this um, there's, there are papers about his family, there are papers about landowning, but the item I brought I thought really reflected that kind of travelling Victorian gentleman and in this spine it says memorials of our continental tour years 1826, 27, it's full of passports for different countries in different languages um, and it's got, so we've got Italian ones, um, we've got all sorts of um, letters of recommendation to um, get into either uh, archives or museums or to meet people who are um, distinguished. So we've got all sorts of really beautifully either printed or or um, uh, written documents um, just saying that Alexander Thompson is a gentleman and and he can be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is one letter from the Foreign Office in 1826 that said, Mr Alexander Thompson, a very considerable landed proprietor in Scotland and his lady, intending in the course of a tour upon the continent to visit Vienna, I beg leave to introduce them to your excellency's acquaintance and to recommend them to your protection and good office. And there are other ones which mention not just his wife but his children or his domestic servants and to say that the domestic servants are... Um, to be trusted as well, but in amongst them all, that are in the binding, it's it's a real hodgepodge of bound papers. It, it's not quite a scrapbook because th I think things are bound a little bit better. They're not so much stuck on pages, but there are all sorts of documents. But you, in one section, there's a shorter catechism, <laughs> so it just mm. turns turns up. So reflecting his religious interests, mm. um, we have a German document on the distillation of alcohol, which seems a bit left field <laughs> altogether. So he's clearly just collecting things that were were of interest to him. Um, when I was looking him up online, and unfortunately we don't have any pictures of him, but on a quick Google search I was able to um, download a picture of him in his library with his wife. Um, this is from the University of Glasgow. And you see on his desk where he's reading and his wife is writing, um, you see pictures of um, old sites in Rome uh, that were obviously of interest to him. So he's got these, um, what would you say, not statues, but uh, sculptures. Sculpture models, rather, of, of uh, sites of interest. Um, and his walls are lined with clearly series of books on particular topics. So he looks like, 
you would imagine a Victorian gentleman. I'm not sure quite what else to say. It's such a curious volume of, of documents, but it, it could only really belong to gentlemen because he was able to afford to travel. He was able to be introduced to important people or in important places. And he was curious about an awful lot of things, papers. So I think he was well respected, um, but he never received a doctorate or was never titled in any way other than the fact that he was an esquire, that he had his own land. So... Um, I'm not sure he was maybe the greatest of scholars, but he certainly wasn't a bad one. I kind of feel like he's middle of the road might seem unkind, but kind of in the middle. He's a gentleman in the middle. He wasn't he wasn't a lord, but he wasn't uh, you know a commoner. He was in the middle somewhere. All of these items reflect our idea of a gentleman, a man of privilege, prestigious profession, education, and leisure. This person traveled, collected, and in some cases, acted ungentlemanly. Moreover, these items reflect the diverse and unusual items within the University of Edinburgh's research collection, and I highly encourage you to see them. Throughout the past eight episodes, I've shared some fascinating objects, but really, I've only scratched the surface. There's so much left to discover and many ways to do it. You can first find out about the collections online at collections.ed.ac.uk, where you can learn about all of the university's different archives. Even better, you can see images of these items at images.is.ed.ac.uk. If you are a student or researcher, you can see these items in person by requesting them through the Center for Research Collections. In the reading room, located on the sixth floor of the university's main library, you can actually see these objects up close and interact with them. Furthermore, you can request medical documents through the Lothian Health Services Archive or documents from the New College Collection, which is part of the School of Divinity. Last, much of the collections are on display. If you are in the Edinburgh area, please visit one of the university's unique museums or galleries. They are the Coburn Geological Museum, located on the King's Building campus, the Anatomical Museum, located within the medical school and open to the public on the last Saturday of every month, and the Musical Instrument Museum, which will reopen at St. Cecilia's Hall in 2017. The university's art collection is featured throughout the University of Edinburgh's campuses, including the Talbot Rice Gallery. There are so many ways to engage with the university's research collection, and I highly encourage you to explore and uncover your own new stories. Images from this episode, as well as previous episodes, are available at uoeartandarchives.tumblr.com. The podcast is also provided on the blog, so you can listen and follow along with the images. The Collection Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections. It is written and produced by Chloe Midgulchi. Executive producer is Neil Lebeter. Many thanks to all of the wonderful curators, archivists, students, and experts that have contributed to the podcast and have helped me share these awesome stories. My name is Chloe McGulchy, and as always, thank you for stopping by The Collection. <laughs>